we're moving along in our uh, in Christianity and liberalism in our study. Uh, we're finally on chapter five, so we're we're getting there. We're, we're gaining uh, with with just a couple more chapters to go after this. But what's going to slow us down is this. This is one of his longer chapters. It's probably close to forty pages, and it's heavy. We have already established. Um, or Machen has established that liberalism has a different conception of the various doctrines that we hold dear as, as Christians. Okay, uh, he started off with his chapter on doctrine, then he moved on to the doctrines of God and man and the doctrine of the Bible and how liberals view the Bible and now we will see how they have a totally different conception of the doctrine of Christ and who he is. Uh, this is what makes Christianity distinct from all other religions. We all must answer the question. And I, you know, if you ever run into a debate with either a liberal Christian or someone who believes that all religions are the same, you have to ask the question, who do you say Jesus is? Right, that's the famous question. That Jesus asked Peter, right? Who do you say that I am? And that's the, that's the one question that hinges all of Christianity. Who is Jesus? So Machen demonstrated how certain witnesses view Jesus. First, he begins with Paul. If you notice in the outline, we're going to cover Paul's view of Christ. The disciples' view of Christ. Christ's view of himself before we move to the liberal view of Christ. And I'll stop there with outlining. But we'll, we're, we're going we're gonna to start with Paul, the disciples, and Christ, all from the witness of Scripture. So Paul's view towards Jesus was, as Machen says, truly religious. Uh, Paul did not view Jesus as merely an example of faith. But he was primarily an object of faith. Uh, classic text uh, would be Romans 3.26. After Paul expounded how we are redeemed in Christ, he says it was so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Also Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1.15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now, these are just some examples. There are many other examples of how Jesus in the New Testament is the object of faith, not just an example of faith. And faith in Jesus is not just speaking about faith in what he did, but it is faith in his entire person and work, as we will see later on. Now, this doesn't mean we never appeal to Jesus' example of faith, right, and how he lived. Paul definitely appeals uh, to Jesus' example of faith uh, for the Christian, because we are to live as Christ, as he, as he said, and we are to grow in his image uh, he speaks in Philippians of his incarnation, which displays his humility and his atonement, which speaks of self-sacrifice and how we too are to be humbled as Christ, have this mind of Christ, be humble and pick up the cross and follow Christ in his death. 
right? Uh, Paul's theology is a theology of the cross, as Martin Luther uh, has said before. We are, we are to follow Christ in his example. And he appeals to his daily life in Palestine as an example. But we shouldn't exaggerate these references of imitating Jesus to obliterate the person and work of Jesus. Because to Paul, what was more important than imitating Jesus was the redeeming work of Jesus that was primary and foundational for the Christian life. Paul's religion was not primarily about having a faith in God like Jesus' faith. What was primary is having faith in Jesus himself. This was Paul's religious disposition. This was Paul's view of Jesus. He trusted in Jesus with the eternal destiny of his soul. He believed that Jesus had the power to redeem. And who is the only one in the Bible that has the power to redeem? God. God himself. So first, Paul's view of Christ. Um, he is an object of faith, not just an example of faith. Okay? Secondly, the disciples' view of Christ. Uh, Paul wasn't the first and only one who had this view about Jesus. There were also the disciples of Jesus before Paul. Paul himself was not converted by the persuasion of the disciples. He actually took part in persecuting them until the Lord Jesus himself converted Paul on the road to Damascus. So this faith, as Paul states in 1 Corinthians 15.3, was a faith that he received. It was by divine imparting, which included faith in the Redeemer, Jesus. Uh, contrary to what some liberals have suggested, Paul was not the first one to have faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul was not the first to make Jesus an object of faith. Uh, this is a view that is out there that the divinity and the idea of having faith in Jesus, making him the object of faith, was something developed over time. Uh, maybe it started with Paul or some certain sects uh, of the church uh, at the time. Then it developed some more over the years in the early church and the way they interpreted the Bible. Uh, I think there are whole documentaries on like the History Channel uh, that are devoted to this idea that the disciples didn't regard Jesus as divine, as God and man. But it is to rip the scripture out of its context and ignore key texts. Like when Paul emphasizes the agreement between himself and the disciples. Uh, liberals were claiming that Paul and the disciples had two different religions. They had two different views of Jesus. But that is not what we read. There is a continuity between Paul's letters and the Gospels. Uh, again, read 1 Corinthians 15 or even Galatians 2.9 when he received the right hand of fellowship which the pillars of the church, Jerusalem church, gave to Paul. They were all in agreement. This idea that Jesus was not the object of faith in the Gospels is far from what we read in the Gospels. And the whole of Christianity wouldn't make sense if both the Jerusalem church, that is the church of the early disciples, and Paul didn't make Jesus the object of faith. He says, primitive Christianity certainly did not exist in the mere imitation of Jesus. They viewed him as an object of faith. 
This is why in every gospel, if you go to the end of it, in every gospel, it says that Jesus was worshipped by the disciples. And actually, that's the bookend for both Mark and Matthew, where the Magi came to worship Jesus at his birth, and then the disciples worshipped Jesus when he rose from the dead. And what about Jesus' own teaching? Now, thirdly, we're moving on to Christ's view of himself. As Machen argued in his chapter on doctrine, he argues again that Christ presented himself as the savior of men. Even after the process of picking apart the New Testament and trying to decide which portions are authentic and which portions are not, liberal theologians still come away with the fact that Jesus presented himself not merely as an example of faith, but as the object of faith. They can't run from it. Think of when Jesus was speaking to his disciples. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That is, in the same way. In the same way you believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus said to Thomas after he asked him about the way, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not, do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In Judaism, that is blasphemous at the time. This is why they picked up stones to throw at him. I mean, they had reason. You can't say that about yourself. Also, Jesus didn't present himself as this easygoing guy with an easy mission to accomplish. He didn't present his work being that he saves you from the consequences of sin so that you can continue to live this relaxed lifestyle. He didn't minimize the load of sin which he offered to bear. He didn't try to present his work as if God doesn't take sin seriously as liberals interpret it. God hates sin. He hates it. Okay? Jesus warned about hell and eternal destruction. He spoke about the wrath of God in a more awful way than his disciples after him. In a more awful way than even preachers today present. Unfortunately, these words are no longer found on the lips of liberal preachers. Instead, they want to be loved, so they avoid presenting God in such a terrible way. But there was nothing in Jesus' teaching about the character of God, which in itself can evoke trust. The way that Jesus presented God would only lead to despair. Trust only comes when he presented the gospel and called us to have faith in him as the only way of salvation from the wrath of God. That is the only way we find any relief from the burden of sin and the destiny that we are all destined to hell. Only through Jesus would we have access to the throne of God. This is what he presented. He presented the great, uh, great guilt of sin. But what is greater is Jesus himself who can overcome sin. That's the good news. That's what he preached about himself. 
We were brought, we were bought at a very high cost, the cost of God's beloved son on a cross. So now, as we see the different views here, Paul's view of Jesus, the disciples' view of Jesus, and Jesus' view of himself, now we can move on to the liberal view of Christ. Let us compare to the liberal view of Christ. They do not consider themselves as standing in a religious relation to Jesus Christ. Uh, The modern liberal preacher has a high view of Jesus, right? Uh, He uses his name in sermons. He even speaks of Jesus as being the supreme revelation of God He speaks in his sermons about trying to enter into the religious life of Jesus, even. So all the works are there, right? But there is no faith in Jesus. For him, Jesus is just an example of faith, not the object of faith. This is why liberals consider all religions to have the same God. To them, Jesus was just a founder of another religion instead of being very God and very man as he claimed. To them, he was the first Christian and Christianity is only here to maintain the religious life which he instituted. Okay, It's to, it's to maintain this uh, Sermon on the Mount, Golden Rule religion that all religions seem to follow. Uh, This is how many churches conduct themselves. Many churches are here only to serve the community around them, but they forget about worshiping the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're all about giving to the poor here. I'm all about giving to the poor and the needy and loving our neighbors. But if that is all Christianity is about, you have lost the Christian message. That is not Christianity. So the question that Machen asks those who cut Christianity down to the example of Jesus' religious life, can we do everything that Jesus did in every respect? How much of an example was he really? How much of his experience do we share in? Was he in fact just the first Christian to start this movement There are a couple of difficulties in viewing Jesus in this way. First, there is the difficulty of the messianic consciousness of Jesus. Jesus knew himself as the Messiah. He proclaimed himself as the Messiah. He often spoke of himself as the Son of Man who was to be the final judge of the earth. Uh, We know the Son of Man comes up in the visions of Daniel. And this vision equates God's power with the Son of Man's power. They have the same power and the same authority. Okay, That's who the Son of Man was that Jesus spoke of. Can we imitate him in this point? I know some have tried, right, throughout church history, throughout the history of the world, but they have failed. They have failed. How many people try to bring the kingdom of God on earth? They have failed. And they will continue to fail. Jesus is the only one. He spoke of himself as the master, the judge who is to separate the sheep from the goats in Matthew 25. 
If Jesus is all about following Jesus, if Christianity is all about following Jesus' example of humility, then those examples would discredit him. Right? If he's just an example of faith, if he is just this humble religious leader, to saying that the eternal destinies of the world were committed into his hands because he was the judge. How would this make him look? How would this make him seem? Is he really all that humble? Is he to be our example? If he said, I am going to judge the world, can we say that in all honesty and be considered humble? What if I got up here on a Sunday morning and said, I'm going to judge the world? You say, he's not, he's not a very humble guy, is he? No. See, Jesus claimed to be far more than an example for us to follow. He claimed to be the king and savior of the world. But they would say in response, this developed later on in his ministry. What was really important was his sonship to God and how he would bring others into that sonship. The messianic consciousness of Jesus is a faulty category. It's not important that he claimed to be Messiah. But our response is that from the beginning of Christ's ministry, he proclaimed the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, which implies that the king of that kingdom has arrived. That's what he meant when he said that. He has arrived. There is no evidence that the messianic consciousness of Jesus, that he was in fact Messiah, and he knew it, developed over time. There's no evidence of that. He always knew who he was, and he proclaimed it. When he was a child, when he was in the temple, what did he say? I came to do my father's work. I came to do my father's bidding. This doesn't sound like a, a mere example or of a humble preacher of ethics. Okay. But he sounds like he claimed to be the ruler of princes and the king of kings and the lord of lords. Otherwise, he would have a stain upon his character. He would not be considered as just a humble ex- example of our religious life as they claim. Secondly, the other difficulty is found in Jesus' attitude towards sin. If he is separate from us as he is the Messiah, if he sensed himself to be the Messiah... He also sensed an absence of sin. He was without sin. But to liberals, sin is just another way of saying imperfection. It's just an imperfection. It doesn't really bother God, right? To the liberal, the whole world is imperfect. But the world is ever changing and ever advancing in this process of evolution. So this idea of absolute goodness in the world, absolute goodness in Jesus, uh, that is not evolving, would be difficult for them. If not impossible to reconcile with. They say, to say that Jesus is sinless and every other man is sinful would go up against the modern liberal notion that mankind is getting better or doing better. I would say, yes, in many areas we're doing better. We're, we're better off, uh, say, since the 1700s in the field of medicine and technology, but not in the area of morality. We're not better off. 
Man has always been totally depraved without Christ. He even taught his disciples how to pray without praying the prayer with them, by the way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Throughout the Gospels, he is dealing with other men's sins, other men's sins, but never finds sin in himself. Paul would even write, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is a big difference between Jesus' experience and ours. He is sinless, and we are not. In fact, the whole gospel message is a message about getting rid of sin. Because all men have sinned and are lost in sin. If men are not saved from sin, they will be lost from all eternity, enduring God's wrath. Remember the first words of Jesus' ministry was repent. If you go back a little further in Matthew's account, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, and told him that Mary would bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That was his mission. His mission was not cultural influence. His mission was not cultural transformation. His mission was not just to do good to the needy and the poor and vice, etc., etc., Machen asks why the disciples connect themselves with his name. Was he just another example of how to get rid of their sins? Or was he the means to rid themselves of their sins? His name means God saves. He saves from what? He saves from sin. Paul considered himself saved from sin by what Jesus did for him on the cross. And not only him, he wrote to the Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is the only way to get rid of sin, is through the sacrifice of Christ, and it is to be received by faith. This was the faith of the early disciples and Paul, and this was the faith that Jesus preached. The gospel good news is not good works. Do we do good works? Yes. But that's not the good news. The good news is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for me. And the fruit of it is good works. But that's all that it is. It's fruit. It does not save us. Liberalism, their gospel is good works. That's what they preach week in and week out. There are two objections now to these Difficulties that we need to guard against. First, the objection that we are failing to recognize his human nature, which has been affirmed by all of our historic creeds and confessions. They say that we are denying Jesus' religious experience and his own faith as a man. Since he was human, he was not only God, but also he was a worshiper of God, which is true. Once he assumed a human nature, 
He can never be separated from that human nature, which is also true. But his religious experience or his relationship to God was not the same as ours because he was without sin. It's not the same experience. Remember, Christianity is about getting rid of sin. His religion was one of paradise, not of sinful humanity. He was to do what Adam failed to do and purify us by his work. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And his religion was to obtain heaven for us. He already shared in the glory with his father before the foundation of the world. John 17, 5. He didn't have to take on flesh. So his religion was one of untroubled sonship. Untroubled by sin. Personal sin, that is. While our religion is one of becoming sons by his redeeming work. We didn't start off as sons as he did, right? We were all darkened in our understanding and dead in sin. And all of us know by way of experience that our Christian lives are not untroubled sonship, even as Christians. It requires a constant repentance of sin and turning back to God, turning back to Christ. The second objection to these difficulties is that we deny his status as our brother and our example. But this is far from the truth. We can't separate Jesus so far from us that he no longer feels our infirmities or sympathizes with our weaknesses. But a brother who feels what we feel yet without sin is not all that he is. All relationship statuses have different experiences. What a son experiences in relation to his father is different than the father to the son. At least I would hope. If he was just our brother, then we wouldn't feel as near to him as when he is also our savior. Yes, he is our brother, but he is also our savior. We can't just treat him like our our brother, right? That's not all that he is. He is also the savior. But that is not to deny the fact that he is our brother and our supreme and only perfect example of faith and practice. In his human relationships, he not only displayed his power when he performed mighty miraculous deeds, but he was also engaged in acts of kindness. He went about doing good, Acts 10, 38. That if we had the will, we should all emulate. But he he wasn't an example of Uh, only in his human relations, but also in his uh, relation to God. See, religion and ethics cannot be separated. Uh, Religion deals with our relation to God, and ethics deals with our relation to other men. Uh, These two cannot be separated. His life could never be understood without understanding his reverence for his heavenly Father. He did nothing, said nothing, And thought nothing without the thought of God, his father. So a human life, that is our life, without the conscious presence of God, even though it is a life of, say, humanitarianism and service to other men, trying to emulate the ministry of Jesus, is, as Machen says, a monstrous,
perversion. It is in itself sinful. Because we're doing it without a thought of God. Without a thought of His glory. See, Christianity is not just about ethics and humanitarian service. But that is what liberals boiled Christianity down to. This is what Christianity, believe it or not, is for most people today. Is humanitarianism. Whenever you hear about Christians on the news, I don't care what news station you listen to, it usually has to do with humanitarianism. How they served other men. But the question is, what was their relationship to God? What was their relationship to God? If we would truly walk in Jesus' steps, we would obey the first commandment, that is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as well as the second, that is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And now we're on to our fifth point, I believe. I think. Yeah, it says fifth point. The liberal version of Christ is not the true Christ. Yes, Jesus is to be our supreme example, but this Jesus who is our example as a worshiper of God and a servant of men is not the liberal version of Jesus. Only the Jesus of the New Testament is the true Jesus. Because the Jesus that they envisioned was manufactured. He is a figment of their progressive imaginations. He is made up and he has a different message altogether. This liberal Jesus' message is one of inclusion and diversity of messages. There is no conviction when it comes to doctrine. It is one of inclusion, diversity. He teaches a non-doctrinal religion that shows equal respect to all messages. If you read closely, that is not the Jesus of the Bible at all. The Jesus of the Bible spoke sobering truth. He wasn't much of an enthusiast. He wasn't enthusiastic. He wasn't optimistic about the progress of mankind. He demanded that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For liberals, that is monstrous. Why would he say that? But this is the example that he laid down for us. The divine and eternal Son of God condescended to take on flesh and become a man. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." If you want to be a servant, a follower of Christ, you will be a servant. You will be a servant. And even though he condescended and became a servant, it was for our salvation. 
He died obediently on a cross to reconcile God and man. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there we see, just in that one text, that Jesus is both our example as he humbled himself, took on flesh, died on the cross, and also he is Lord. He is both at the same time. This the liberal would reject. So on to our sixth point. Who is the true Christ? So for the liberal, as he says this, I'm going to repeat this later on. It's a kind of a funny way to put it. Jesus is the fairest flower of humanity. That, that's, to the liberal, that's who Jesus is. While for the Christian, he is a supernatural person. There lies the greatest difference. They're trying to bring God down, trying to bring his nature down, trying to, to deny the necessity of Christ being divine as well as human. Now for Paul, let's, let's see this in Paul. The conception of Jesus as a supernatural person runs throughout the New Testament. After Job, just a little preview for those uh, select few here, the VIP. Our next uh, letter we're going through after Job is going to be Galatians. Um, I, one of the most important letters in the New Testament. And we see in this letter, and a few others which I will point out, Galatians 1.1, Paul separates Jesus' humanity and places him on the side of God. When he says, Paul an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. We, we, we tend to read that very quickly and we don't notice what he is saying there. He is not an apostle through men or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. What is he saying there? He's saying Jesus is not no ordinary man. And this is how Paul regards Jesus throughout all of his letters. Jesus is separated from ordinary humanity. And when he does refer to Jesus as a man, it is as if it was something strange and wonderful. We see this in his letter to Timothy. He even directly says that he is God in Romans 9.5. To them, the Jews belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And the most obvious designation is when he speaks of Jesus as Lord. Uh, this is not just referring to his status as a ruler of a limited space, but as Yahweh, the Lord of the covenant. Paul's early converts would have been familiar with the way he used Lord as it was used even in pagan religions. Never mind when Paul quotes an Old Testament text in Greek and applies the term Lord to Jesus that was originally applied to the God of Israel in the Old Testament. But even more significant is the fact that throughout his letters, Jesus, 
again, is the object of faith. But not only Paul, but in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not only John, a lot of people say, well, you want to learn about Jesus' divinity, go to John. No, it's not just John. John is the clearest one, as we read earlier. But read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke as well. Because you've got to understand the context in which they were writing and what they would have believed, what they would have understood who the, who the Messiah was and who God was in all of his power and his majesty. It was all applied to Jesus. Jesus is presented every time as a supernatural person. This is proved by his supernatural power over all creation in all creatures, including demons. I think it would be wise, given the, the size of the next portion here, that we're going to stop there, and we're going to pick up where we left off uh, by speaking of what does it mean to be supernatural. What does supernatural mean? Um, any questions, comments, anything to add to what was said? I saw some wheels turning, so there's something out there. When well, that helped with my uh, um, understanding of, of how liberals view Christ. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I also gathered from when I and when I read part of the chapter that uh, it really shows what, what's going on in churches today. Though is that the focus is not on the sinful nature of man or the, or the wrath of God, but it is on this liberal thing we're reading yeah. here. And where you think that it isn't a liberal church, well, you know what it really is. It, yeah, uh, it's Sermon on the Mount theology, right? Um, Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus himself. But you've got to understand the context. I have said it before. Who is he speaking to? And who is he speaking as? Right? To understand the Sermon on the Mount. He was speaking to his disciples. Not to the government. Not to Caesar. Not to even the crowds that were following him. In the text it says, to his disciples he started to speak. And then he, he expounded what new kingdom ethics looks like, which we are to strive for. Not that we'll ever perfectly attain it on this side of heaven. Right? That, that's, that's, that's what the Sermon on the Mount was. And he spoke as one who had authority. You heard that it was said, but I say to you. No prophet spoke that way. No prophet. He was declaring his divinity, saying, I am the one you are to listen to, not these Pharisees and scribes and all these other false teachers. So, yeah. That <clears throat> but the Sermon on the Mount gets ripped out of its context, and now you have whole churches that base their entire ministry surrounding that one sermon, the golden, on the, golden rule, rather than Christ himself, God himself, um, as the, the center of worship. And that elevates man, and man becomes the center of worship. In these churches. Oh look what we've done. Look at all that we have accomplished. Right. So it goes from a supernatural religion. To a natural one. And we. And uh, as Harley said. The liberal preachers that we've known. Um, probably very popular ones. Um, who have. Talked about Jesus this way. He, you know. 
um, as, as an example of faith. And as long as we do what he said, you know, we will establish the kingdom of God on earth. That's not what he was saying at all. We are to be lights in the world. And even if that light is going to be stomped on, it will never be put out. Um, there is nothing in the Bible that says, if we shine as lights, everybody's going to like it. <laughs> no. Actually, the darkness fights against the light. And we see it every day. Right? So. so I'm not a revivalist, if you're, asking, if you're wondering. There's no promise of a revival. 